brethren, when you think of sin, what comes to mind? What comes to your mind? What comes to the forefront? What emotions are elicited when you hear the word sin? I'm going to pick up on some of the messages that you heard yesterday with the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well. As we think about trying to stay out of the world, the world that we came out of during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What do you think of when you hear the word sin? What reaction do you have? Is it fascinating or interesting? Hmm, sin. Yeah, I've seen some of that. It looks intriguing. Because doesn't the world today try and make sin look interesting, inviting, like something we want and need? Do you react to sin with indifference? You know, oh, sin. I don't give much thought to sin. It doesn't really affect me. We learned differently during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, didn't we? And we will as we, some of us, discover leaven that was hidden during the feast. <laughs> the whole time, probably right in front of our noses. Do we react to sin with, you know, a bit of a negative feeling? But not overwhelming, you know. Sin is not very good. I, I don't really like sin, so I'll try and stay away from it a little bit. Maybe I should avoid it rather than interact with it. Or do we react to sin with a vehemence? A, Ugh, yuck, disgusting. I don't want anything to do with it. How do we react to sin? How does God react to sin? How does Jesus Christ view sin? Brethren, as we move forward from the Feast of Unleavened Bread and we work to remain spiritually unleavened, free of sin, what I'd like to do today is share with you a lesson, a powerful lesson that I am learning related to sin. I have not mastered this lesson yet, but I've seen its power. I've seen the power of this tool to help avoid sin and prevent sin. It's a strategy that's very effective. And it's a perspective that is critical in order to be granted entry into God's kingdom. If we don't develop this perspective, brethren, we probably will not be there when that trumpet sounds. My purpose today, brethren, is to discuss three different ways to learn to really hate sin. In fact, if you're looking for a title for the message... I've entitled it, Learning to Hate Sin. Now that's a powerful word, isn't it? Hate. That's a word that for most of us as Christians we try and avoid. God says we're to hate no person. But God has a different perspective on sin, as we'll be reminded as we begin to look at a few scriptures. Before we jump into it, though, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage of scripture that you probably read yesterday. We did read on the first holy day that you probably read as you prepared for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Let's read them again. Verse 6. 
Your glorying is not good, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and ultimately to us. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little sin. It's all it takes is a little sin. And guess what? We've sinned. What did Christ say about the commandments? He says, if you break one of the least of these, you're guilty of breaking them all. You're guilty of the blood of Christ. So just a little bit can be dangerous. Just a little bit of sin can keep us out of God's kingdom, can't it? Just a little tiny bit. It says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the feast, that is the feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You heard about that yesterday. The unleavened bread really of righteousness is what it gets down to. God's way. God wants us to live that way. Not just during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, though. No? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1, a passage you're, you're familiar with as well. Paul, writing here to the Romans, makes the observation. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, it's really interesting that Paul brings up this argument because this is an argument that we hear in so-called Christian churches today. Christian pastors, you turn on Sunday morning preachers and you're going to hear this argument from time to time about the law. You know, if we keep the law, then what was the point of Christ dying for us? It's an argument that's a couple thousand years old. It was being used at Paul's time and it's still used today. But Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And certainly with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, putting sin out during that week, we've got to continue, don't we? We must continue to work to put spiritual leaven out and to replace it with righteousness. We can't live in sin any longer. One of the challenges, and maybe I'm the only one that faces this challenge, but after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I have this feeling of, whew, made it through. And there's a tendency in the back of my mind to just relax a little bit. I don't have to watch for leaven anymore. But what I've got to make sure that I do is I, that I don't relax too much and let the sin that leaven pictures come back in. Because if we relax, it will find its way back in. And we're going to talk some more about that today. Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many as us, of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? He died so our sins could be forgiven. We died at baptism. That old sinful person theoretically died at baptism. That the sin should stay there. Therefore, verse 4, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we want to continue that, don't we? 
as we go forward from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we move toward Pentecost, as Mr. Dawson was talking about, we want to continue walking in that newness of life. John 8, verse 44. John chapter 8. Here, Jesus Christ is interacting with the Pharisees. He's chiding them, actually, in this passage of Scripture. In fact, we'll start reading in verse 42, John 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of Myself, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand My speech? And then He continues, Because you are not able to listen to My Word. Verse 44, You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Christ calls Satan what he is. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. But he tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, Satan the devil. Pretty powerful. You can understand a little bit why the Pharisees got angry and wanted to kill him. This is something I actually talk with individuals about whom I have the opportunity to counsel for baptism. As we live in this world, we live the life in this world, a world which is molded and fashioned and designed by Satan the devil, a world over which he is the God, we, over time, develop his character traits, don't we? And in many ways, he becomes our God. That's one of the things we have to repent of as we approach baptism, that we have actually developed his character traits. We haven't knowingly adopted him as our father, but it's just happened. We live in Satan's world, don't we? We live in his society. And in fact, if you think about it, we sort of marinate. We stew in Satan's society every day, don't we? The more we interact with it, the more we take on or can be taking on its characteristics. The question is, how and to what extent have we been affected, influenced, molded, and fashioned by Satan's society? During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we work at coming away from it. After the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we can fall back into the habits that we tried to give up during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and fall back into that sinful society and begin to pick up again on the sins of that society. As we understand, sin separates us from God, doesn't it? Sin separates us from God and sin will keep us out of the kingdom of God. Brethren, learning to truly hate sin will help us remain separate from Satan's sin-filled society. Learning to hate sin will help us remain separate from Satan's sin-filled society. What does God have to say about hating sin? Because this is a, a bit of an unusual concept. I think we know it intuitively, but what does the Scripture have to say? You might want to do a study on that at some point. We're going to grab a few scriptures today. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 45. 
Psalm 45. Now, Psalm 45 is interesting. It's a messianic psalm. This particular psalm is pointing to the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will become Jesus Christ. In fact, Psalm 45 and verse 1 says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The King here is the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can read down through the first several verses and you see it. He's girded with a sword on his thigh and he's not riding on a horse. <clears throat> but verse 6 The psalmist is writing here, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is definitely Christ. Verse 7, You love righteousness and you what? What does it say? You hate wickedness, sin. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. God loves, Christ loves righteousness, but He hates sin, doesn't He? As we work to put on more of the mind of Christ, this is a perspective we have got to develop more and more. Let's turn back to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verse 10. Psalm 97, 10. Now we read as we approach the Passover how we are to love God. And those who love God do what? They keep His commandments, don't they? John said that. Verse 10, it says, You who love the Lord hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. How many of you love God's law? We all are working to do that, aren't we? How many of us hate evil like we should? I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I do not. I am not where I need to be in hating evil. It's something I struggle with. I have to work on. I have to push myself to do. But if I really truly love God, this verse tells me I've got to hate evil. Let's look at another one. Psalm 119, 104. We'll come back to Psalm 119 later on in the sermon. But Psalm 119, 104 is a similar scripture. David is musing here. He says, through your precepts I get understanding. Through your law, through your statutes, through your teachings, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate what? Sin, right? Every false way. David learned to hate sin by studying the ways of God. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Let's go there. Proverbs 8, 13. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to, seems like a similar verse, doesn't it? Hate evil. And then he begins to go into a little bit more detail. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth. I hate. Pride, arrogance, the perverse mouth, I hate. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So we've got to ask ourselves a question. How well am I doing on this one? What can I do to do it better? First or Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look back here. This is an end time prophecy. 
2 Thessalonians 2, talking about the man of sin. But let's notice something here in this passage in 2 Thessalonians. Because it relates to this concept of hating sin or loving sin, appreciating sin, which is the opposite. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. In fact, let's start reading in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the works of Satan, with all power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Unrighteous deception. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Verse 11. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in sin, unrighteousness, the breaking of God's law. Because they didn't hate sin, they began to take pleasure in sin. What's the prophecy? God will send them strong delusion that they'll believe a lie. This is serious stuff, isn't it? If we can't learn to hate sin, we're liable to begin to like it. You really can't be indifferent about sin. It's one of those things you do or you don't. <clears throat> That's why God tells us we've got to come out of the world. John 8. John 8, verse 31. Jesus said, John 8, 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We know that scripture. They answered him and they said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Pharisees didn't want to hear it. They weren't trying to hear what Christ was trying to teach them. Jesus said to them, verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in a house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. If we work with sin, if we accept sin, we become a slave to sin. And we become a slave, frankly, to the master of sin, don't we? And who's the master of sin? Who's the king of sin? Who's the one who introduced sin into the cosmos. And Satan the devil, isn't it? The God of this world. We certainly do not want to be his master. Brethren, if the reality is if we're not actively working to identify sin, we will become desensitized to it and we will become accepting of it. Let me say that again. If we're not actively working to identify and hate sin, will become desensitized to it and accepting of it. Why? Because we live in Satan's sinful world. It's everywhere. So, we see a bit of what Christ's mind on sin is. He hates it. Christ hates it. The Father hates it. They want us to hate it. If we truly love them, we will learn to hate it. Why is learning to hate sin such a powerful tool? In overcoming. And how can we learn to hate sin? 
Let me ask and answer the first question first. Why should we learn to hate sin? Why is it such a powerful tool? Let me have you do something. I want you to think of a sin that you detest, that you cannot stand, that you hate, that disgusts you. Think of a sin, a type of sin that is revolting to you. You have one in your mind now? Are you ever tempted to try that sin? Are you ever tempted to engage in that sin that is so disgusting to you? Probably not, right? Why? Because it's awful. It's terrible. It's disgusting. If we're really revolted and put off by something, we want to stay as far away from it as we can, don't we? One of the sins that put me off from the time I was a young child was cigarette smoking. And yes, cigarette smoking is a sin. And if you have questions about that, ask one of the ministers here, or frankly, ask one of the longtime church members. Any of them can ask, answer that for you. But as a child, I just thought, this is revolting. It stinks. I knew as a child that smoking cigarettes would kill you. It would catch up with you sooner or later. And it was something that I never liked. When I was in middle school and kids were experimenting with cigarettes and they offered them to me, I was never tempted to try cigarette smoking. Never tempted. It was just nasty. I didn't go anywhere near it. That's just cigarette smoking. But one of the things that I've been trying to do is trying to develop a hatred of other sins like I do for that. Brethren, if we can hate all sin as badly as we hate that sin that you just thought of and be put off by all sins like that, how much sin are we going to engage in? God is infinitely wise when He tells us Learn to hate sin. He knew what he was talking about. It's a powerful tactic to overcoming, to moving toward righteousness so that we can be clean before God and be able to be one of those first fruits that the next Holy Day talks about. So how do we learn to hate sin? What are actions that we can take so hopefully we can develop a hatred toward all sin? How can we improve on that? In the rest of the sermon, I'd like to give you three actions that you can take to learn to hate sin, truly hate it. The first action, and it's a little bit long, but I'll give it to you, is to zealously study the Bible, zealously study the Bible, so that we more clearly understand what sin is and what righteousness is. We've got to come to an even clearer understanding of what sin truly is and what godly righteousness truly is. But to get that, we've got to really study zealously in the Scripture. Turn with me to Romans 7. Paul makes an interesting and a very helpful observation along these lines with this particular point. Romans 7. Verse 7. Romans 7, 7. 
Paul observes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he answers himself. He says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. The law of God made sin clear to the Apostle Paul. How did it do that, brethren? How did the law make sin clear? Well, the reality is, if it's not keeping the law, if you're not keeping the law, you're probably breaking it, aren't you? If it's not in the law, it, it probably is sin. As we clearly begin to understand the law of God, His ways, His statutes, His precepts, we know what His way is. And the opposite is sin. Not doing His way becomes sin. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We can learn what sin is by studying the law. And what better place to begin to study the law than Psalm 119? The Psalm of the Law. The Psalm that describes the law in great detail. What it is, what the blessings of obeying it are. It's a long psalm, but it's an exciting one related to the law. Psalm 119, verse 98 to begin with. Psalm 119, 98. <clears throat> Actually, verse 97. It says, Oh, how love I thy law. We sing this song during church service, don't we, from time to time. Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, how in the world did... David meditate on the law of God all day long. It must have gotten boring. Do you think? What motivated him to want to study the law that long? We're going to see some of that in a minute. He says, verse 98, through your commandments, you through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they're ever with me. One of the reasons David loved the law of God is because it gave him wisdom. Understanding how God's principles work, how He designed them to work, gave him wisdom. Helped him see what his enemies couldn't see. Basic principles. Blessings of life. God's law is a blessing, isn't it? God gave us His law to bless us, not to curse us. In one of our former associations, the ministers before I left were talking about, some of the ministers were talking about, the Ten Commandments is the Ten Don'ts. That's how they talked about them. The ten don'ts. Oh, they just want us to keep the ten don'ts. Like the law was some kind of a plague or, or some kind of a thing that just hurt you. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Do you really want to live in a world where people do covet, do steal, and do commit adultery? No, of course not. David said, it gives me wisdom beyond my enemies. It makes me wise. Verse 104, let's look over there. God's law is a blessing, isn't it? God's law is a blessing. Verse 104, through your precepts, your ways, your statutes, your laws, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Brethren, why and how did David learn to hate every false way through the precepts of God? 
Can you think of examples that may have motivated David? Can you think of a law that David broke through which he learned to hate every false way? How about thou shalt not commit adultery? What happened to David's life because he committed adultery? What happened to David's family because he committed adultery? David lost three sons because he committed adultery. An infant? Another son who was murdered by one of his sons. And his eldest, who was murdered by one of his generals. David's family was ripped apart because he didn't keep that law. But... Through David's meditation, he looked at that law. He studied that law, apparently. And he came to the point where he began to loathe, to hate sin. Because he saw the destructive power of sin. And he saw the impact of that sin. David's studying the law helped him hate sin. When you see the blessings of the law, you can see the consequences of not keeping it. And it can really make you learn to hate sin. Brethren, how many of us have learned to hate certain sins because we've experienced them ourselves? And we'd never go back and do certain things because we hate that. Because we recognize that there's blessings for not doing that and for keeping God's law. Verse 128. Let's look over across the page to verse 128. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right and I hate every false way. David, again, was using God's precepts to learn to hate every false way. Let's flip back to verse 11 of the same chapter. Psalm 119.11. He says, Your word I've hidden in my heart. Why? Why did David hide God's word in his heart? Why did he make it part of him? God's word, God's law, God's precepts. Why did he make it part of him? That I might not sin against you. Brethren, if we can make God's law and His ways more a part of us, part of our heart, we can do this too. Not sin against God. Brethren, we've got to regularly review and study. If we don't, I encourage you. And I'm pointing fingers at me too. I've got to do this. Regularly study and review the Ten Commandments and God's statutes so that we develop a greater ability to identify what is of God, what is righteousness, and what is not, what is sin. If you haven't read Dr. Meredith's Ten Commandments booklet in the last year or two, I encourage you, pull it out. Review it again. To me, this is one of the most practical booklets he's written. Because it takes us through commandments step by step, and it shows us the practical application of how we obey them and not break them. Very practical. It can be very helpful to do that. Let me give you actually some homework to work on. If you're looking for some Bible study over the next couple of weeks, as we move forward and we try and keep away from sin and develop more righteousness, one topic to study, brethren, is actually beginning to make a list of sins listed in the Bible. What are sins that the Bible lists? 
as we begin to view them, keep them in the forefront of our minds, we're going to be keyed into them and be able to identify them more quickly and hopefully avoid them. But go through the scriptures. Begin making a list of sins the Bible talks about. You may even want to categorize them because there are many. But if we're not in touch with them on a regular basis, we can forget what some of them are. Let's go to Galatians 5. As we think about studying righteousness, studying sin, so we more clearly understand what it is. Galatians chapter 5. What is Galatians 5 known for? We have uh, young people in the audience, kids in the audience, who could tell us the answer to this question. Galatians chapter 5, one of the things we know it for is the fruits of the Spirit, right? What's interesting is in this passage, God actually contrasts the fruits of His Spirit with something else in verses 19 through 21 called the works of the flesh. What are these works of the flesh? How would you describe these works of the flesh? They're really aspects of Satan's character, aren't they? Or Satan's spirit. Characteristics of Satan's spirit versus characteristics of God's spirit. Characteristics of the world versus God's characteristics. Let's look at them briefly. Uh, Galatians 5.19 For the works, now the works of the flesh, are evident. They're evident. They're there in front of us. We can see them. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, things that we know we need to avoid. How well do we do this? Remembering that Paul is talking about not only the physical aspects of these characteristics, but the spiritual aspects too. I would guess most of us aren't out committing adultery and fornication. But, are we, as we examine ourselves, what are we looking at on the web, in magazines, pornography, soft porn? What about mommy porn? That's a new term. I'm seeing heads shaking. What is that? What about some of the novels mommies read? The steamy ones. It's pornography. Maybe not visually, but it paints mind pictures. These are things that we can get into if we're not careful. And they're going around and they're popular. What else? What are some of these other works of the flesh that are talked about? And these are things, brethren, I encourage you, go back to Galatians 5 and review and meditate on verses 19 through 23 once a month over the next year. How am I doing with these? Which characteristics do I have that I need to get rid of and work on? Which characteristics am I growing in? This is a very powerful tool. Just five short verses, but they're very helpful. So we see fornication, we see uncleanliness, we see lewdness. Lewdness, using vulgar language. How much of that makes it into our vocabulary? whether in day-to-day conversation, in jokes, uh, in whatever we talk about. Idolatry. Most of us don't have little golden images or silver images or images of wood that we're bowing down to in our homes. None of us do, I would assume. 
But do we have other idols in our lives? Idols of the heart that we put before God. Our work, our bank account, our things, our family. We can look at that in ourselves. How about sorcery? (laughs) We think about sorcery. We think about witches and and things like that. Most of us are not involved in things like that. Um, What is sorcery? It's, It's really putting another God before God and other powers before God. What's the root word of this in the Greek? What is the Greek word here for sorcery? It's pharmakia, or something very close to that. What does that sound like to you? There's one down on the corner, a little bit north of the building, called Walgreens. A pharmacy. It's interesting, isn't it? So what's being talked about here? Pharmakia. This idea that drugs play in here. Medicine. Well, we certainly see people using medicinal and drugs to escape and to go to another world sometimes. You see drugs and illegal drugs in society. Uh, we have states now that are, are legalizing marijuana, which is, has hallucinogenic properties, among other things. So it's, it can be talking about that in part. There are actually religions around the world that use drugs in a state of hallucination to draw closer to their gods. That can be part of what's being talked about here. How many people in the world today turn to substances instead of God for healing? You know, go to the doctor, get your prescription, get your over-the-counter drug, go to the health food store and get your herbs instead of turning to God. I've had people tell me, I'll get anointed, but I'm going to take my herbs first. Or I'm going to take my drugs first and see if they work. And I'm thinking, isn't that a little bit backward? Isn't God our healer? Should we not look to Him first? So this concept of sorcery is bigger than what we would think using our Western labels. We need to consider that. Not that taking herbs or other drugs is wrong. There can be certain benefits, but we've got to keep our priorities straight. Let's continue. What else do we see? Hatred. Christ talks about hatred and murders in the Gospels. Definitely a work of the flesh, a satanic inspiration. Contentions. What is contention? Is that pushing against each other that I can't get along. Constantly friction between other people and a desire to fight or a a tendency to do that. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. This is uncontrolled temper. Selfish ambitions. I want opportunities. If I don't get them, I'm going to do whatever. Dissensions. Heresies. Not believing truth, but introducing falsehood in the name of truth. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are some very clear sins and areas of sin that we need to review from time to time so that we are more sensitized to them, so that when they approach us, when we get near them, our sin alarm system goes off. And we say, oh, I've got to stay away from that. I don't want to go near that. As we study the next couple of 
chapter, or verses here. The fruit of the Spirit, these are things God wants, is love. We don't have time to review that in detail today. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, please go back and do that again. There's an incredible amount of detail in defining what godly love is. Certainly something that probably every one of us in here can improve upon. Joy, another fruit of God's Spirit. How joyful are we? How thankful are we to be here, to know what we know, to have this incredible truth, to experience the blessings that we experience, the protection from God that we experience. Peace, a peace that comes only with God's Holy Spirit. That peace that transcends. That you can be through be in a major trial, major difficulty. Yet be okay with that because you know God is in control. Had the opportunity to um, spend a couple of hours with a church member in prison a week or two ago. And he doesn't know when he's going to be let out necessarily. It could be years. And I was amazed by the peace that he had. He was okay because he knew God was in charge. He was doing God's errand, if you will, where he was. He wanted to be useful to God in whatever place he was in. And he was at peace with the fact that he was in prison and he doesn't deserve to be there according to our laws. But he's there anyway. Where do you get that peace from? That only comes from God's Holy Spirit. What else do we see here? Long-suffering, patience. Yeah, that's one I need to work on. Right, family? I haven't perfected that one yet. I'm working at it. I really am. And I think they could speak to that as well. But that's one I need to work on even more. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all godly aspects. And as we develop more of these, as we become more patient, which sin does it help us identify more quickly? Or sinful perspective? Impatience, right? God is eternally patient. If you haven't done so in a while, maybe go back and read through some of the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Look at the sins of the Israelites and look at how many times God literally is begging them. After He says, you've sinned, I'm going to send you away into captivity. And then He says, but if you will just come back to Me and turn your hearts back to Me, I will take you back. This is after He's divorced them. And he says, come back. Turn back to me. Boy, patience. That is part of the essence of who our Father in Heaven is. And as we become more like Him, He wants us to have it. And to put off impatience. So as we study these characteristics, we can really learn a lot about who God is and what He's all about. Psalm 51. Please turn there with me. As we think about studying God's Word to come to a deeper appreciation of what sin is and what righteousness is. Psalm 51. A psalm that we sing 
a song that you may have sung even at the end of the Passover service this year. Let's read verse 3 of Psalm 51. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That was verse 2. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. What's David mean here? What does David mean? My sin is always before me. This psalm was actually written, Mr. Ken Frank did a Bible study just before the Passover in, in depth on Psalm 51 and reminded us that this passage was written in reaction to David's sin with Bathsheba. At what point did he do this? I'm not sure. Maybe some of these thoughts came together as he was fasting for seven days on his face as his son was dying, his first son with Bathsheba. But he reflects and he says, my sin is always before me. He may have meant that I can't get away from this sin. It's surrounding me. It's always in my mind and in my heart. What else could he have meant? Brethren, what happens if the concept of sin and being aware of our tendency to sin is always in front of us? Making us aware. If we're always aware, if we're constantly aware, we're much more likely to avoid sin, aren't we? If we're thinking about it. When are you most likely to sin? When you're thinking about sin or when you're not? I talk about sometimes we can, we can hit spiritual cruise control. You know, in a car, we've been doing a lot of driving lately, you get on a highway and you push cruise control and you don't need to step on the gas anymore. The car just cruises at a certain speed. Sometimes we can do that spiritually. Think we're going along and doing well. Hit spiritual cruise control. You know, I'm praying in the morning and I'm doing my Bible study in the evening. I'm not thinking a whole lot. I'm just going through the motions. And that's oftentimes when sin creeps up on us because we're not really looking and are on the lookout for it. So David gives us that example. Um, acknowledging that sin is around. My sins are always before me. It's an interesting way to look at that. So one way to hopefully learn to hate sin is to really study the Bible. As you're doing, keep doing it. Do it even more. Looking at what righteousness really is and what it really looks like in our life. And also looking at what sin is. Being even more familiar with it. What's another action we can take? Action number two, as we work to hate sin even more, is to fervently pray for God to help us discern sin. Fervently pray for discernment of sin. There's a line from a Star Wars movie which strikes me. Yoda is talking and he says, Hard to see the dark side is. And it makes me think about sin because sometimes sin is very hard to see. It's camouflaged so well. It doesn't look like sin on the outside. You know, you can go to the grocery store and you can look on the shelves and some of the stuff looks incredible, doesn't it, on the shelves. 
It looks amazingly wonderful. But not all of it's amazingly good for us, is it? It might even taste amazing. And then you flip the box over and you begin reading all of these amazing things you can't pronounce that are in it. <clears throat> Let's go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. So we think about praying to God to help us discern sin. Praying for that spirit of discernment. As we exercise God's Holy Spirit more and more, hopefully we will grow in this spirit. But we've got to ask God as well for more of this spirit of discernment. Hebrews 11. And let's read verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy what? The rotten evils of sin. Is that what your Bible says? Mine doesn't. Mine says the passing pleasures of sin. Is sin always an awful thing, at least initially? Or is it pleasurable at times? Think about Moses' situation here. He's a prince in Egypt. He has everything at his beck and call. He has servants, access to palaces. Study the Egyptians. How many palaces did the Pharaoh have? He could only be in one place at one time. He had access to the royal yacht fleet, which came with its cooks and its servants. He had access to all kinds of things. What wonderful things he had. And he probably could have had them for his entire life. Yet he realized that there was more to life than this life. And he couldn't put up with it. What about this concept that sin is camouflaged in Satan's world? Can you think of other examples in life or in Scripture where sin is camouflaged? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Look at the first recorded human sin with me. You know what it is. Let's look at the camouflage of the sin. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Satan, in the form of the serpent, as you're aware, is trying to get Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit. The one thing in the garden God said... No, you may not have. God said you can have everything else, but not this. <laughs> and so what does human nature do? Human nature says, I want what I can't have. But Satan did something else too, didn't he? He packaged the sin. And packaging is, it's all about packaging. In marketing, isn't that what you do in marketing? It's how you package and how you market the product. In fact, a good marketer can sell you something that you don't want and you don't need. And that's what Satan did to Eve. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Marketing gimmick number one. The concept. The idea. If you eat this, 
You're going to be like God and God is preventing you from having what you need to be like Him. Ooh, that's a heady thing, isn't it? If I eat this, I can be like God. You know, it's the, the fountain of youth. You can live forever. Let's read the next verse. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, it was desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate it and she gave it to her husband too. Notice this does not say, when the woman saw that the, uh, that the uh, tree was bad for food, it was a gnarly trunk with pointy stems, the fruit smelled like rotting flesh, and there is fruit today that does smell like rotting flesh. And the fruit had flies and maggots on it. The scripture doesn't say that, does it? It was desirable. What might this fruit have been like? Beautiful and bright in color? Maybe a couple different brilliant colors? Soft yet firm to the touch? What about the aroma? from this fruit. Do you think it smelled like rotting flesh? Or do you think it smelled sweet and succulent? We had the opportunity to live in North Florida for a few years. And in January, and late December, January, February, the Florida fruit came in. Not the California stuff. Not the California stuff is bad, but we lived in Florida. So it was just shipped a couple of hours, not the whole way across the country. It came right from the tree to the farmer's market that we got it in. It wasn't picked green. My favorite, favorite citrus fruit is a satsuma tangerine. It has the most brilliant aroma of any citrus fruit that I've ever eaten. It's sweet. There are actually no seeds. And it almost melts in your mouth. It's wonderful. I think about the fruit in the garden. I don't think this was a piece of junk. This wasn't nasty. This was brilliant. It was something alluring. It's something that Eve just had to taste. You ever been around a smell and your mouth just starts to water and you can't wait to taste it? You may have had that experience yesterday at the meal between the Holy Day services. This fruit must have been like that. Oh, she just couldn't wait to sink her teeth and her lips into it, just to, to taste that drop of nectar coming out of it. And she did. Because she didn't hate it. She developed a desire for it. Satan packaged it he packaged the sin. He camouflaged the sin. And it deceived her. Psalm 119, 18. Psalm 119. David, in the psalm, prays in a very interesting way. <laughs> Despite David's weaknesses, David is a powerful example of faith and he learned a tremendous amount about God's way of life and God's law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Let's look at the way he prayed. Psalm 119, 18. He says, Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. 
Now, this is the guy who meditated on God's law day and night. Yet here we're seeing him say, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Why? What does Satan's society tell us about God's law? The ten don'ts, right? This thing that was nailed to the cross, you don't have to do it anymore. That's old covenant. David says, open my eyes so I may see wondrous things from your law. Like what? What wondrous things can you see when you study God's law? When you can see through Satan's camouflage that says this is a bad thing. Let's think about a commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Brethren, what will change in the world? What would change in the world if just this one commandment were kept? Just this one. My pockets would be lighter because I have a bunch of keys in my pocket. Anyone ever been woken up by a car alarm or a house alarm? We had the LU students at the Outer Banks camping this past week, and in one of the campgrounds we stayed in, car alarms went off several different times. You're, you know, you're enjoying God's creation, you're enjoying sort of the peace and the quiet, and burp, burp, burp. No more. What else changes if we keep just this one commandment? No locks on homes. You ever had anything stolen? How many of you had a home or an apartment broken into? I'm just curious. Okay, about 12 to 14%. I'm going to use a window because I'm not as specific as Mr. Ames. No more break-ins. No more stealing. No more locks. How different will it be where there are no more locks? No more security guards. No more policemen. I'll ask a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever had a mate stolen from you? Think about it. That's a different commandment. It moves into a different commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But doesn't it often happen that a mate is stolen by someone else? Brethren, what will happen in the world when that doesn't happen anymore? When our kids were real little and we traveled, we traveled a good bit in airports when they were small. And I did something that I told myself I would never do when I became a parent. <clears throat> I told myself I'd never put my child on a leash. How in the world could I as a parent put my child on a leash and treat them like a dog? Guess what? When you're going through big international airports and there are thousands of people and you have a two-year-old who can't stand still, sit still, he has to move. Or she has to move. Let's include both of them. As a parent, you don't set them on the ground and let them run. Because they'll be gone in a flash and you may literally never see them again. So we leashed our kids so they could be a little bit free. But as parents, it went through our minds, 
What happens if someone takes our child? Parents, many of you know what that feeling is like. What will it be like not to have that worry? Ever again. Your child gets loose, takes off. Somebody's going to grab your child and bring him back in God's kingdom. Nobody will take that child. What about child slavery? It will be gone when nobody steals anymore. Brethren, think about the impact of this. David is praying to God, open my eyes, let me see these incredible things from your law. These are some of the incredible things in the law of God. As we study the law of God, as we meditate on the law of God, these things become real. And sin becomes more real. And a hatred of sin begins to happen even more powerfully. Because we see the blessings that God wants to give and we see the destruction that the world brings on itself and the hurt because they don't keep God's law. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Verse 12. Another interesting psalm here. Look at the prayer that we see in Psalm 19.12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults or my secret sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and shall be innocent of the great transgression. But look at the prayer. Cleanse me from my secret faults. These things I don't even know I'm doing, God. Forgive me. But if we're truly going to repent, it's not enough to just be forgiven, is it? We've actually got to change. Otherwise, we're going to do it again. So in a sense, David's praying, not only cleanse me, but show me what they are so I don't do it again. And this is a perspective that we have to have as well. Show me. Because there are secret sins, aren't there? There are mistakes that we make that we don't even realize. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, hopefully, has taught us some of that. My daughter was deleavening in our dining room a couple of weeks ago. She was cleaning the china cabinet, which has never, ever had food in it. It just holds plates and spoons and things like that. And she ended up pulling a drawer out of the top of it and wiping off the support under the drawer. And there's plenty of dust up there, obviously. And there were some crumbs up there. Five feet off the ground. Six feet off the ground, almost. Nothing has ever been in the drawer food-wise above it. How in the world did crumbs climb up the side of the china closet underneath the drawer, and lay there. But the spiritual lesson is, don't make the assumption that you have no sin in this area because there's never been leaven there. It can make its way into the most secret areas. And David said, the psalmist said, cleanse me from these secret sins. We've got to ask God to help us because sin is camouflaged in this world. It will hide Some of it's blatant. Some of it, yes, is right in front of our face. But much of it, and the kind that will capture God's people and entrap us, is probably more of the quiet, camouflaged kind. Because we're hopefully on our guard for some of the bigger things, although not always. So I've given you two actions to take to learn to hate sin more. One is to study God's Word more zealously, looking in studying the commandments, the statutes, the precepts versus what sin really is. 
The second is to fervently pray for God's help to discern sin. The third action, brethren, is to deeply consider how our sins impact others. Deeply consider how our sins impact others. In Mr. Ken Frank's Bible study that I mentioned a little while ago, he made the observations that our sins reflect on God. Our sins reflect on God. How is that? Back to the special music. Whose name do we carry if we're in God's church? We are Christians. We carry Christ's name. If one of my children engages in something that is wrong and is seen publicly doing that, does it reflect just on them? Or does it reflect on everybody who carries that name, Winnale? Mom and dad? Uncle and aunt? Grandpa? We carry Christ's name. Our sins reflect on Christ, don't they? Think about it. Think about how sins reach far beyond us. Think about how our sins reach beyond us. Think about sin. Divorce. Does that just impact the two divorcees? The husband and the wife are getting divorced? Or does that go beyond? It affects everybody who loves them, doesn't it? Children? Siblings? Parents? And most of us have been affected directly or indirectly by divorce. We know how it goes beyond. <clears throat> what about drunkenness? Is a drunkard the only one who's affected by their drunkenness? That sin? Or are others impacted? What about pornography? Oh, this is just my little fetish. Does that just impact the person who's into pornography? Mm. Destroys families. Destroys marriages. And we can go on with lots of other examples. But let's look to Hebrews 3 and see what Hebrews 3 has to say. As we think about how our sins impact more than us, we could deceive ourselves sometimes into saying, oh, you know, I'm going to do this. I know it's not quite right, but I'm the only one that's going to be impacted. That's a deception. Because sooner or later, as Scripture says, our sins will find us out and they do impact much more broadly. And brethren, I know you know this, so please know that I'm not assuming you're unaware. I'm reminding you of what you know as we all work to continue overcoming. Hebrews 3 and verse 13. Hebrews 3, 13. <clears throat> Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we talked about how it's camouflaged. But the other side of the deceitfulness of sin, or one of the other sides, is that it doesn't just impact me. Sin always results in pain and destruction. Eventually. It may not be immediately, but sooner or later it's going to hurt. And it will hurt more than just us. Let me have you turn with me to Leviticus 4. And I want to look at a statute here. A statute that we do not keep anymore. Thanks to the sacrifice of our Savior, who died once and for all, so that the blood of goats, the blood of bulls, no longer needs to be shed. However, 
there's a lesson we can learn about sin from reading these statutes that can be very helpful. God designed an incredible system. Even in Hagar, the Old Covenant, it was an incredible system designed to teach deep lessons. And one of the lessons that it was designed to teach is that sin hurts. It hurts people. And it hurts things. Leviticus 4. Let's break into Leviticus 4 at verse 22. And read what one of these principles was. It had to do with sacrifices for sins. And I think you're all aware that when the Israelites sinned, they were to sacrifice an animal. Depending on the type of sin and their monetary resources and their resources of their herds. They had different animals that they were supposed to sacrifice every time they sinned. Every time. Verse 22, When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God, in anything which should not be done, and is guilty, or, verse 23, if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and he shall give it to the priest, and the priest shall carry out the sacrifice of the animal. Is that what your Bible says? It's not what my Bible says either. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they shall kill the burnt offering before the Lord. This is if a leader does this. What if someone who's just a regular member of the congregation does this? Let's skip down to verse 27. If any of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin offering which he's committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Anybody ever had a kid or been around goat kids? Thanks to my in-laws who had them, I've had that opportunity in the past. And they are fun to have around. They are literally almost like a puppy. They are like a puppy. They don't lick as much as a puppy might. But they're very playful. And they'll jump and hop around and they'll play games with you, they'll chase you, they'll run around, they'll headbutt you. They're really fun. What was God teaching through this statute? Sin hurts. What were you to do if you sin? You bring this kid to the tabernacle, grab its head, scruff of its neck, Hopefully not too close to the, where your knife's going to be. Slit the throat. And your puppy is bleeding in your hands. Why would God do that? Because He had to teach a lesson that sin hurts. And it goes way beyond us, doesn't it? Our sins impact the lives of others, and in this case, the lives of innocent creatures who had nothing to do with sin. 
Have your sins ever killed someone? Mine have. We sang, they sang about him in the special music today. His name is Jesus Christ. And he suffered and he died. Because Scott Daniel Winnell sinned. Because I sinned, he had to die. Or I would not be able to have the opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. And he died for your sins. He died for the sins of people who aren't born yet. He died for the sins of people who've cursed his name. It's amazing when we think about it. In order to be forgiven, we've got to have blood. There has to be death. But brethren, our sins go way beyond us, don't they? They impact far more than just us. Think about the first sinner. Who is the first sinner? Ever. I'll give you a hint. He was created perfect in all his ways. And he had a different name than he has right now. His name meant the bringer of light. Satan. When he sinned, who did it impact? How many angels followed Satan in his sin? Any idea? What's the fraction? One third of the angels, right? Roughly, how many does that consist of? Did that consist of? You can look it up on your own. Revelation chapter 5. We're given the number of the angels on the throne of God. Over a hundred million of them. The angels that follow Lucifer, Satan, at least 50 million. Sin goes way beyond us, doesn't it? The foolish virgins. Think about them. Matthew 25. Does it start with all five? We don't know the rest of the story. Or is it one or two foolish virgins who fall into this trap of lethargy, spiritual lethargy, and it's catchy and actually motivates others to follow them in their sin? Brethren, one of the ways that we can learn to hate sin even more is to remind ourselves of how sin impacts, our sins impact more than just us. Our sins, brethren, are a mechanism that Satan uses to deceive us into separating ourselves from God. Satan can't keep us out of the kingdom. He tries to deceive us into giving up our spiritual birthright. Sin is the thing that will keep us out of God's kingdom and prevent us from having our prayers even heard by God. Sin is deceitful, as you know. It's entrapping. And the only way to avoid Sin is to be constantly on our guard against it. That's why Paul warns us multiple times, be vigilant. Pay attention. Be on your guard. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that we've just come out of teaches us to remove leaven, sin, from our lives and our homes and to replace it with godly righteousness. 
We've got to continue this, brethren. I encourage all of us. Let's continue on this path of being spiritually unleavened. Even now that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. Learning to obey God's command to truly hate sin is a powerful way that we can make this happen. I encourage you to put into practice even more the points that we talked about today. Zealously study the Bible to more clearly understand sin and righteousness. Fervently pray to God to help you discern sin even more. Deeply consider how our sins impact others. Brethren, we have an adversary who wants us to miss out on God's kingdom. He wants us to disappoint our Father in heaven. He wants us to hurt our God. And if we don't make it into the kingdom, our Father in heaven will be hurt. He built us. He made us to be there. He wants us there. He molded and fashioned us in His very image because He wants us in His kingdom. We don't want to let Him down. But we've got to push ourselves, as Dr. Meredith tells us, pushing forward. We must do all we can to learn to vehemently detest, to hate, to loathe sin. Only then will we be able to avoid it more effectively and make our Father in heaven proud. Brethren, I encourage you, keep working hard. Keep pressing forward. Keep focusing even more wholeheartedly on this mission and really learn to really, truly hate sin.